Hello, I'm Joshua Groisberg, a history enthusiast. And I'm Jacob Friedman, founder of People's Big News. And this is Gen Zero's Talk Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful analysis and maybe some comedy along the way. We'd like to welcome a student activist from William Met University, Inez Nieves. Inez, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Our first question, how would you describe your political leanings? I would say I'm pretty much a leftist in terms of my politics. I identify mostly as a socialist. So somewhere between like probably in people's heads, if they were thinking of like a straight line, it would be between like a social Democrat and like a communist, like I'm smack dab in the middle of that. What are your thoughts on the recent trial of Derek Chauvin? You know, I think that it says a lot about our country that so many people expected it to be a not guilty verdict. And the fact that since Minnesota's founding in the 1800s, that this is the first time a white police officer has been held accountable for an extrajudicial killing is astounding. And I think that says a lot about our country as a whole. I also am kind of afraid of what this guilty verdict will mean for the legacy of the Black Lives Matter movement and the impact of George Floyd's death as sort of like a resounding moment for a call for racial justice. I'm concerned that a lot of people who are either moderates, liberals, and conservatives will view this as some sort of sign that the system is working when really the system has always been broken and this is just essentially a sacrificial lamb to the slaughterhouse for the sake of the system. It took months and months of protesting and elections and calls to our representatives and to the federal government to actually get this victory. And I don't think that this is necessarily to be something it is entirely given like purpose or responsibility to the jury, right? Like, I think there are a lot of extenuating factors that allowed this to happen and not necessarily just the system as like a criminal justice institution. So you're saying that this is in no way a real victory. Uh, so what should America be doing right now? What are the immediate next steps to get actual action, actually preventing police violence against African-Americans? So it depends on what group you're probably from or what perspective you're looking from. Right now here in Salem, I'm focusing most of my energy and my activity particularly on trying to defund the police department here. Salem Police Department three weeks ago actually killed a black man who was in a mental health crisis in the middle of the street. And it hasn't been recognized by the police department, it has not been recognized by the university, and it has not been recognized or acknowledged by the city council. And I think that like George Floyd's trial specifically, it specifically acknowledges the importance of the way in which over-policing of particularly marginalized neighborhoods and communities ends up in increased extrajudicial killings and extrajudicial actions. So I think that mostly we need to focus on not just simply reforming the system and passing legislation to provide band-aid solutions for like a sinking ship. But what we need to do is actually install programs that allow for policing alternatives that are actually like quantitatively proven to work. For example, community-specific patrol groups based on a volunteer basis that has been something that has been practiced by people going back to the Black Panthers. It's something that was installed in Minneapolis post the George Floyd killing. Other things that we can do is for start restorative justice communities. I was a teen court prosecutor 
back home in a um, juvenile diversionary program that helps so much to lower the cost of judicial proceedings for oftentimes marginalized families who can't afford to go through with actual cases to prove their innocence. And also furthermore, just like making sure that we have like mobile crisis units and we're decriminalizing houselessness and substance abuse. So if I can just ask, what do you mean by defund the police? That's a very charged slogan, and even in more liberal circles, it's been attacked by right-wing media, it's been attacked by, by people who, who are more focused on the purely political side of the equation. What does defund the police mean to you? So to me, I think what it means, and what I think most people intend to mean when they say that, is looking at police department budgets looking at how much money they spend on an annual basis versus how much they're actually allocated by their like local cities, their states, the federal government, and seeing where that money goes, how it's used, and how it's not used. And then determining whether or not to either lower the budget in order to save money for other programs or reallocating that amount of money to start new programs that are policing alternatives or anti-police alternatives or complete abolition by moving all of those funds, particularly in like small communities or in marginalized communities towards other different programs. So I think it can mean like a variety of things, which is why it sometimes gets misconstrued for political reasons, because like a lot of communities are not the same, right? Like in America, we have a lot of not only ethnic and racial diversity, but also regional diversity. And it really depends on the community needs and the community wants. And so, like, I think when we talk about defunding, we need to be more specific about the context of where, who, and how. So, like, in Salem, what I would argue is, like, the first step is reallocation as opposed to abolition, but working our way towards abolition. You mentioned you support abolition. I'm just wondering, I think we can all agree to an extent that there should be a force that can control and stop dangerous criminals from harming, harming innocent civilians. How would you strike a balance between traditional police forces where they could possibly use the force to stop extremely dangerous criminals and possibly invest putting money into other programs that may stop crime before it even happens? So I think that like we've already seen the way in which such policing efforts can actually be balanced, but take it to a more radical extent. So like, for example, in the United Kingdom um, and in Japan, those countries specifically have like different police forces for different operations. For example, they have civilians act as traffic officers. Um, so they're specifically trained in traffic stops, specifically trained in like giving out traffic tickets so that those types of stops are not A, militarized and B, escalated by police violence. And when there is a need for a certain type of police officer, for example, when there's a situation of extreme violence or when there's just a situation of conflict, you either send in a police officer who's trained in violent and deadly force, or you bring in a police officer who specifically does not have weapons and is not trained to use one. I think rather than just leave it at that, what we need to do is have like diverse programs of, as I said, specific community patrols that are like, they're knowledgeable about the community. They have relationships within community. They understand the various different ways in which oppression and racial identity intersect with those interactions with the police. And also like, that doesn't necessarily mean that like policing goes away, right? Like that is a different form of policing, right? Which is oftentimes misunderstood. But it's not the same context as the type of like militarized policing that we have in the United States. Like that's the distinction. Is it militarized 
Is it racist? Is it a white supremacist practice versus is this actually something that the community wants, that the community sees as helpful and the community sees as a part of it, rather than some distant or foreign institution that is oftentimes used to repress them on a racial basis. Do you believe that President Biden should possibly take executive action on policing reform without, without going through Congress? It depends on what type of action is being taken, right? I think that in order to have long lasting change in terms of reforms, like I feel like any step towards any change with the police is a good change, but I also think that we need more radical change in the long term. And we have not seen that for the past two centuries from when they were first conceived as slave patrols to how they're now a militarized force that puts down quote unquote riots, which are mostly peaceful protests. So it depends on what you're asking me in terms of the policy being like executed. I think when our minds were like the end of no knock warrants and uh, bank chokeholds, uh, like the George Floyd, uh, I believe the George Floyd Policing Act, I believe it's called, mm-hmm. that's in Congress right now. Not as radical as, as you are proposing, but in general sense, backed by a, ma- a majority of, um, of more Democrats right now in Congress and President Biden. Yeah, I think that if we want long lasting change or at least long lasting reform, it would need to be a legislative solution because that's the only way that it has any chance of like actually lasting and making a cultural shift within these police departments. But I also think that it would be a wise like political move to do that by executive action. And Biden does have the power to do so as the chief of the executive branch. I can definitely see him doing that for federal forces. And to be honest, I would totally support executive action when it comes to specifically like the FBI or like the CIA, which are like two totally different organizations compared to the police, but still, once again, based on systems of racial oppression um, and also settler colonialism, which also intersects with policing. But like I said, any movement towards actual change is good change. And so let's pivot to student activism in general. Um, You're talking about a lot of uh, issues and a lot of, as you described yourself, radical changes that America at this present moment is torn itself over. And even with, um, you know, communities of color, polls show that they still want some kind of police force there, as we, as we understand policing now. So as an activist, how do you work with that? How do you deal with people who are on your side and disagree with you on these types of issues and people who are way are polar opposites? How do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think that something that I've personally experienced a lot of as being somebody who like moved from like Florida and took a cultural like 180 from there to Oregon, um, it's definitely been a wonder to see people who <laughs> agree with me for what in the community. And all my years of experience doing activism and working within politics and working within the system and restorative justice, I think the most important thing to help people understand why radical change is such needed is one, storytelling. I think storytelling is a really important rhetorical function that a lot of people look down on. So for example, Jacob, you'll probably remember when I gave that talk at Yale University about sexual assault violence and the way in which those scandals have been misinterpreted throughout the history of the United States, particularly when it came to like politics. And by telling my own story and telling the story of other different women who had experienced similar types of violence as me, people were more sensitive to that because now it's personal. You're seeing the other person as a human. And that's exactly what we're doing. And that's exactly why the George Floyd case was so powerful in revitalizing this movement. It's because you see this man 
for who he really was, which is a human being who was calling out to his mother, who volunteered in the community, who worked with the Salvation Army, who dedicated his life to service. And he was flawed, yes, but then again, all humans are. And that's exactly what we need to be doing, is making a movement that's based on storytelling and humanization. The second thing is education. So like, for example, the statistic you cited about how most communities of color like prefer to have like modern policing. Well, modern policing can be a lot of different things. Modern policing does not have a very strict forensic definition within law enforcement, right? It's usually just a rhetorical tool that's used in campaigns. For example, uh, police chief Trevor Womack here in um, Salem, he was hired in October, 2020. And many of his claims when he was going through the interview process was I'm gonna bring modern policing back. And that means many different things to many different people. And so what we have to do is we have to break down these words and make them as specific as possible while also maintaining like a level of like accessibility to those really powerful slogans and mottos. So like Black Lives Matter, defund the police, abolish the police. Like these phrases have very specific meanings to a very specific group. But when we educate people about what they really mean, they become more aware of the nuance of it. And so, yes, we need to be aggressive when it comes to politics, but we can't be aggressive when it comes to canvassing and when it comes to efforts to educate people. That needs to be done at an interpersonal level, whereas like the type of aggressive politics we're seeing on the national level, I believe needs to be taken up a notch. What type of advice would you give to other social activists that want to fight for the causes that we've discussed? I think the most important advice I could give somebody is like start in your own community and also don't assume that you know the best for your own community. Um, so like, for example, if you're at a university like I am right now, it's possible that you have a student government. There's possible that in your city, there are multiple different organizations that work for social justice causes. For example, in Salem, we have Latinos Unidos Siempre, which is a student youth-led organization that fights for Latine students in the high school programs here in Salem-Kaiser County. Getting involved in these groups while understanding that like, you as an individual might have privilege or you as an individual might have different experiences from the people that you're meeting and talking to is really important because you can't advocate for somebody if you don't know exactly what you're advocating for. And that's something that's super important in advocacy. First, don't make promises you can't keep. And second of all, ask what the person needs and do it. So like, for example, I'm a sexual assault response advocate at my university and we are explicitly taught everything that a victim or a survivor asks you for is for a security and safety reason. A really good example of this is somebody coming in and saying, I need a laundry washer. And it's like, well, I can't get you a laundry washer, but like, why do you need it? And then you understand that, oh, this is a single mother who needs to do her laundry, but can't leave the house because of her abusive partner. And she also needs to pick up her children, which means that she can't have the time to go out herself and go to a local laundromat. And she can't go to her neighbors because then they would report that to her abusive partner. And so you see how all of these different things are interconnected, right? And so I think sometimes the most simplest changes can be the most radical, which is why mutual aid is such a beautiful part of advocacy. And then another thing I would say is like, get to actually know your community members. So I'm in ASBU, the Associated Students of Willamette University. And it has been such a pleasure being able to actually talk to people on a one-on-one -on -one basis, which is really hard in the COVID era. 
Um, but at the same time, technology has made it much easier to communicate with people. And so, for example, um, on Thursday night this past week, there were students protesting in front of the Salem Police Department for abolition, and a white supremacist drove up and fired a live round into the air with a shotgun and threatened to murder people. And so I really wanted to like create action about that. I wanted recognition from the university. I wanted the university to take a stronger stance on fighting for defunding the police. I wanted them to act not just like sit down and have discussions with the police department on campus, but like actually make demands of the police department. And so what I did was I reached out to those students and I asked them for their testimony. And I asked them like, hey, do you need any resources for trauma? Like that's really traumatic. Hey, do you need anything to like tell professors that like you need to turn in assignments late? And that not only builds rapport with other people, but it's a great way to like make friends, which might be cheesy, but also to understand the different experiences of people. One of the students who was involved at the protest, they had a physical disability and they couldn't run. So when this guy drives up and threatens to kill all of these young students, all these young protesters, they can't run. And like, what does that mean then when the police not only doesn't interact with white supremacists, like fails to act on the fact that a white supremacist is threatening to kill people in front of your department, but the fact that you're also not taking into account the different ways in which people are affected by white supremacist violence, right? So like, it's not just about like, this is a direct threat to the livelihoods of Black and Indigenous folks, but it's also like, what does this mean for the people who aren't physically capable of escaping this violence? And it goes far beyond that. We have to recognize that like there are different types of violence that not all may be physical, but it's still violence in the community. And so like having that understanding of the broader network of social relationships is super important. So our final question to you is, is there anything else you would like to say to our audience? If you're really interested in restorative justice, and I would highly recommend something that I super duper loved when I was in high school and I've been fighting to sort of like have installed here in Salem is a teen court program. So a teen court program is essentially like a juvenile delinquent, like diversionary program. So essentially like the state will offer minors a civil citation for misdemeanors and certain types of felonies. And they'll be diverted into a voluntary based program where they can actually like interact with teenagers their age. Um, and understand like the judicial system and like also receive resources and support and rehabilitation, which is super important. I want people to keep in mind that restorative justice does not mean hard labor. So like, for example, in Salem, there are programs that require youth who have been arrested and are in the juvenile system to actually like work without wages, like in a cafe or like in a wood shop without like without wages, unpaid labor in order to be quote unquote rehabilitated. And that's not how restorative justice should work. It shouldn't be based on capitalist exploitation. You shouldn't have to prove yourself worthy of being a productive member of society based on monetary value and and like productive output. Really what restorative justice looks like is programs like Team Court, where you take people and you have them understand the way in which their actions have affected other people, the way in which their actions impact society the way in which our relationships with each other can oftentimes intersect with systems of oppression and stereotypes and prejudice and how sometimes our own traumas impact the way in which we interact with the world and our own actions. So I think that we need more programs like that, especially for our generation. 
I think that's where you start to expose a lot of more people to the justice system and to restorative justice. So like if you're out there and you're listening, please go check out your clerk of courts, go check out your local courtroom, see if they have a teen court program. And if they don't, try to establish one. We'll make sure to put a link into the description. Inez, thank you so much for joining us here today. It was a pleasure to have you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. And that concludes this episode of Gen Zero's Talk Politics. Be sure to join our Discord server, follow us on Instagram at Gen Zero's Talk Politics, and on Twitter at Gen Zero's Talk Poly with an I, and add or email us to ask your burning questions. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time.